Now I want tonight, uh, for the last time, to go back to the story of Elisha. It's in Second uh, Kings chapter 13, verses 10 to 21. It'd be quite interesting, I think. Uh, it would be. I would really love to get uh, all of you to feedback on this chapter and tell me the kind of things that you would preach from, uh, from it, and some of the points you would make, what you would make of the the arrow, the bit with the arrows, and the bit about. Uh, the dead body and the resurrection and, and kind of all the strange names and the kings and what we would make of it because you know when the first reading you look at that a passage like this and you, the end of Elisha's life and you think oh, oh boy it's just really it's so different it doesn't really connect with who I am where I am what I'm doing tonight uh, who you know who I am uh, and the kind of life I lead you know culturally historically Spiritually, socially, in a literary way, conceptually, it's, it's more like Narnia, really, uh, than my day-to-day living. There's not much in it that really connects with, with what, what is my life. And so I think a lot of the time we'll come to a passage like this and we'll just we'll kind of read it because, well, we read the Bible. That's what we do. And we, we're plowing through the Old Testament. And I, I read the Bible in a year. So I read the Old Testament and I read the New Testament. Even if I don't make any sense of it, I just read it. And that's what, that's what we do so often, isn't it? And we think, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with me and with my life. And it's so divorced. It's so far away from what I am and my understanding of God, this beautiful New Testament God that was revealed in Jesus Christ. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we feel that, you know, it's just a, a brief summary report here. Uh, it's written down so we don't have the kind of nuances. We don't, we don't sense the, the people and the the context and the background and, and what God knows about these people. And uh, so we struggle with it in many ways, on the surface at least. But I wonder whether uh, in reality uh, it, is re- it is that different. And why, why would I say that? Because it's got a, a couple of very important things, or crucial realities in the story. One is it's, uh, it's about God. And uh, the other thing, it's about us. It's about people. I know the times and the generation and the culture and everything's very different. But it, I wonder if it really is that different. Because there's, in many ways, we can take from it truths about God and truths uh, about life and uh, truths about spirituality and truths about death as well. And that's what I want to do briefly this evening as we finish uh, this account. And uh, I think it's... it's the most, in, in many ways, it's interesting, isn't it, that Elisha's death uh, is so understated in this whole passage as well. Elisha, it's just one verse, Elisha died and was buried. There's no fanfare. Uh, there's no great sort of story all round about uh, Elisha's death. Uh, it's no different from all the other kings. It's just recorded and mentioned and moved on. Um, but nonetheless, I think we can, as we come to, as this concludes the story of Elisha, I hope we can learn something. Uh, about uh, the God uh, of Elisha for ourselves. I think that's very important for us to remember, even when we're reading the Old Testament and when we are seeking to make sense of it, is that God is still the same. God hasn't changed. Hebrews 12, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God. And uh, the Old Testament believers might not have had a clear understanding exactly of who God was uh, in terms of our Trinitarian understanding of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But uh, it was nonetheless God. And he is eternal. 
and he's unchanging at that level. And there's two things in this chapter uh, that are typical of the God of the Bible, the God that we have put our trust in, and uh, the God uh, who is the only God. And the first thing is that he's a God of promise. God is always a God, and, and throughout the Bible, he comes across as this God of promise. It's God who has worked right from the beginning, right from the core of the problem between man and God in Genesis chapter 3, where he makes this tremendous promise, you know, uh, I will put enmity between you uh, and between the seed of the woman and you. And the promise goes on uh, right through Scripture uh, to the coming of Jesus. And God is a God of covenantal promise. So that in verse 22 uh, of this passage, which we didn't actually read, it's near towards the end, uh, Hazel, the king of Aram, oppressed Israel, Uh, But then we're told the Lord was gracious uh, to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so this covenant that he makes with Abraham uh, is a significantly important covenant because it's a covenant, it's 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 the beginning of the covenant of grace. It's this promise Uh, that I will be your God and you will be my people, that is uh, made full in the coming of Jesus Christ. There's one story. There's one story of rescue, that God is the God who rescues us. And uh, we enter into a relationship with him, lost and we're saved. And he does it through this covenant that he makes with his people, covenant to uh, deliver us. I was listening uh, You'll probably hear me say this probably about once every uh, three or four weeks. Uh, I'll say, I was listening to a sermon of Tim Keller because I listen to it in my ear, earphones on the way to work sometimes. And uh, he's got a great little bit about uh, the covenant that God makes uh, with Abraham. This, uh, there's a, Genesis 15, there's a brilliant picture. Again, it's a picture that we would look at and really not make any sense of because God's making a covenant with Abraham at this point. And uh, he takes various animals, God does, and he cuts them in half. And he lays them out on either side of the aisle like it was here, like the aisle here. So he lays out these animals on either side, cuts them in half. And, uh, well, and he goes on to, to uh, in that visual way, he goes on to make this covenant with Abraham about uh, being the, the, the redeemer and saviour. Now, that initially doesn't mean anything to us, but it would have meant a lot to Abraham. He would have understood exactly what it meant because it was the kind of thing that a sovereign king would do when he had defeated a vassal nation, a small state, but was entering into a covenant with them, a covenant where he would protect them. This, this great, powerful king would protect the smaller nation and uh, he would walk through between uh, this, the animals that had been split into and he would make a covenant to protect them and he would, that it would be sealed by this uh, uh, initiation. And then the vassal king, the king of the smaller army who was to serve this bigger nation and this bigger king, he would also walk through uh, in the aisle and say that I will fulfill the terms of this covenant as well. I will obey you and I will come under your sovereign oversight and lordship. And as they walked through, they were saying... If I break this covenant, it, it will be to me as it has been to these animals. I'll be cut in pieces. So it was basically saying, you know, you, you kept this covenant. Otherwise, there was, there, was, uh, there was 
um, consequences for not keeping the covenant uh, that would be, you know, ultimately would be death. But in that covenant that God makes with Abraham, Genesis 15, God walks through in the darkness. Darkness comes over and uh, symbolically he walks through. That in itself is amazing. God, God enters into relationship with Abraham. But the more amazing thing is he doesn't ask Abraham to walk through. He says, basically, uh, God says, if you fail, I will be cut in pieces on your behalf. And it's pointing forward to Christ being our saviour, who in many ways literally was torn apart on the cross for us because we are covenant breakers. We could never keep that covenant. And so Abram would have recognised that this was a unilateral, divine covenant that God was making on our behalf. He gives the blessings. He takes the curse on the cross, walking through the valley of the shadow of death for us. That's the promise that's made right there at the beginning of the Old Testament. And uh, it's on the basis of that covenant that he uh, remains faithful to his people right through the Old Testament and is committed to them. He's a God of promise. And he wants, therefore, his people in the Old Testament and for us also to trust him wholeheartedly. Now, I can't really... uh, I don't know exactly uh, what this uh, story is uh, about in verses 14 to 17 where you have the the picture of the the arrows and... uh, shooting the arrows and the king doesn't shoot enough arrows and uh, then he gets judged. So what's happening, what's happening here is, is Elisha's dying, okay? And so Jehoash, the king, goes to him and he weeps over him and says, well, if you go, how are we going to survive? Because the prophet always is the one who um, invokes God's help on our behalf. You know, the chariots and horsemen of Israel were going to be destroyed. And so Elisha as a kind of last act, he says, to get a bow and arrow, take the bow, and he says, and fire it, and then he says, the symbolic act as you hit it eastwards towards uh, uh, the, the enemy, you will d- completely destroy them. And then he says, take the arrows, strike the ground. And the king strikes it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry and said, you st- should have stuck the ground uh, five or six times. Uh, then you would have completely destroyed Aram. Now, we're not really told... Uh, why that was a disobedient act, really. Uh, We're not given much detail about it. Um, But what what seems to be the case is uh, that he was being half-hearted. The king was being half-hearted in his fulfilling of the command. He only struck the ground three times. He he should have struck it more. Now, we don't know. It, It seems a bit odd to us, doesn't it? It seems a bit unfair. But obviously God knew his heart and possibly Elisha knew and maybe it was something that was known even to the king. He should have known something a bit more about being wholehearted. But clearly he didn't trust God completely. God had made this promise through uh, Elisha and uh, he could have completely destroyed his enemies but he didn't really believe it. So he didn't really wholeheartedly fulfill what he was commanded to do. And um, we know that God would have seen his heart. He wasn't convinced that God would give the victory with Elisha going. And isn't that often the case with us in a very different way? God promises many things 
And he says many things to us. And he promises us victory over sin. And he promises us a way forward. And he promises us guidance. And he promises us a future. And we kind of half-heartedly believe it, but not wholeheartedly. So we kind of, we, we, we trust in ourselves. We half-heartedly trust in God. We give him a bit of the benefit of the doubt, but we don't really follow him wholeheartedly. And uh, God wants us to be Christians who wholeheartedly follow him through his promises because of the promises he makes. You look right back at the Bible and all these promises are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And, and all the Old Testament promises, the messianic promises are fulfilled in Jesus, as are many of the other ones. And so we can take confidence in a risen Savior that the promises he makes about our future and about heaven and about even, not just about heaven, but about life now, he will also fulfill. So we, we trust him wholeheartedly. So we're not, he doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He doesn't want us to be half-hearted. He doesn't want us to drag our feet spiritually. But really, go after him. Because he's the sovereign God, as Tom was saying in the prayer. He's, he's worthy. He's big. We shrink him down. We make him absolutely tiny and not really worthy of being followed and uh, serving him because of who he is. So we have here this God who's a God of promise... But also, in in the same way, he is clearly revealed here as the God who is the judge. Uh, You know, in verse 11, we have this repeated formulaic verse right through Kings where he says, uh, speaking about the king, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Neba, which had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. So you've got this... um, constant, uh, repeated uh, formula of judgment on the kings uh, in uh, these books of the Bible. In the eyes of the Lord, they did what was evil. So there's this great, there's this great, this, this great recognition that morality, evil and good, is not ultimately just a, a, a democratic decision a Christian decision, but it's God's decision because it's the eye of the Lord that's spoken of here. So it's in the eye of the Lord. It's the Lord who sees, in other words. It's the Lord who watches. And clearly, he is the standard. So we sneak in behind a closed door and we think nobody's seeing or we think lots of things in the privacy of our own mind and we think nobody knows. But what the Bible reminds us of constantly is that the eye of the Lord is on us. And it's is an eye that sees our hearts and knows our motives. Because if it was just how we would act outwardly, and if it's just our moral outward behavior, probably lots of us could be saved. I don't think I would. But some of you would. Some of you are very moral and upright and beautiful. And in fact, many people outside the church are much nicer and beautifuler than we are out, outwardly sometimes. But the eye of the Lord sees the heart. Which is why we need a saviour. Because he sees it's what comes out of our hearts. It's what comes out of our thoughts that uh, cause us to need a saviour. It's the bitterness, it's the envy, it's the jealousy, it's the lust, it's the impurity. It's all of these things. And the eye of the Lord sees and we're accountable to him. And that's unchanging, isn't it? So we'll go from here and we're aware of the eye of the Lord on us. And not in a, not in a spooky way. Because it's the eye of Jesus. It's the eye of the one who was forsaken on the cross for our sins. It's the eye of the the God who loves us no greater love 
as any man in this, he laid down his life for his friends. So as you go from here, you want to, who you want to impress? Who, who is it that matters to us? Who are we seeking to put first in our lives? Because surely the eye of the Lord, the living God, is hugely significant. It, it drives us to prayer, but it also drives us to honesty, to not being hypocritical Christians, uh, you're trying to be what we're not. It drives us just to being honest and humble because God sees in our hearts. So the God of even a passage like this is no different from the God of the New Testament and the God of Calvary and the God of the cross and the God of Jesus. Second thing is briefly is the Old Testament story uh, that we have here in Kings is a roller coaster, okay? That's, that's the nature of uh, the text, it is like that all the way through kings. It is a king who did well, a king who did miserably. King who did well, king who did miserably. King who obeyed, a king who rejected. King who uh, followed, a king who didn't. So you've got this up and down all the way through kings of the kings who... It's like a roller coaster. But they always needed deliverance. And, you know, right through the Old Testament, whether it was Moses or Joshua or kings or the prophets, there was this always need for a savior figure coming to redeem them. And that, of course, is pointing forward to the need for Jesus. And it was kind of like, in the Old Testament, it was kind of like boom or bust. Uh, today's economy of greed is a good picture of, uh, that, that we can spiritually apply to the Old Testament. It was a picture of extremes. It was kind of boom or bust. There wasn't terribly much consistency in the faith of the Old Testament uh, believers. And sometimes we look at that and say, wow, that's just... That's just what my, like, my Christian life's like. Boom or bust. You're close to the Lord, I'm far away from the Lord. Near or far away. And there's this constant uh, boom or bust. And maybe we justify it as we look at the Old Testament. I, I think our experience should be different. Because the New Testament is a progression from the Old. And we are far more privileged than Old Testament believers. This deliverer that was being promised and that was reflected in the lives of prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Moses. They're all typical figures, as it were, of Jesus. But our deliverer has been Jesus on the cross. We looked this morning briefly at his, his cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also says on the cross, it is finished. It's done. The work is done. And we have the resurrection. Now can I just say a little bit at this point? about this bizarre little end to the story uh, that we have in uh, this chapter, about the Moabite raiders coming. And uh, it's, it's kind of quite fun. I, f- I think it's quite a funny little story, but also a bit bizarre, uh, where one of the Israelites were burying a man, suddenly saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elijah, Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. What is that about? Do you ever remember reading that before? This is nothing to do with venerating the bones or the ancient relics of the saints, as if there's some magic in them that could, mystery and magic that could bring people back to life. This is again pointing forward in quite surreal terms in many ways, but pointing forward, saying, okay, Elisha's dead, but the power of God and the promise of God remains with the people and that there is hope and a future and there is life and again it's pointing forward 
to this great redemptive work of Jesus, his own resurrection, and the power of that for the lives of believers. You know, in Matthew 27 from verse 51, it talks about the cross, the crucifixion, when Jesus died. Uh, um, wait a minute, until we look that up, it's just uh, it's after Jesus died. In fact, it's probably the resurrection. Matthew 27, and uh, at verse 51... just after he died when Jesus had cried out again and allowed he gave up his spirit at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook the rock split the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life they came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people it's the same kind of thing it's just pointing forward to the the significance of the deliverer and the redeemer and the God who is going to come and bring that uh, resurrection into our own life. and But we are post, aren't we? We're post Calvary. But we're more than that, we're post uh, resurrection, the third day. We're, but we're more than that, we're post the ascension. Jesus goes back. And we're post Pentecost, where Jesus in the upper room had promised the Holy Spirit to his people that he wouldn't leave us as orphans, but he would give us, he would come in the person of his Holy Spirit and live in our lives. So I don't think we have an excuse for living a boom and bust Christian life. Because we're not Old Testament believers. We have, we have God's power and God's strength in our lives. I'm not saying that will always be the case, but I don't want us to use that as an excuse for that kind of, I'm near to the Lord, I'm far away from the Lord, I'm having a bad week, I'm having a good week. Because much of what is spoken of in the New Testament is the conditionality of our faith, is that that we stick close to Jesus Christ and we have a responsibility because he empowers us. We don't need to be boom and bust Christians all the time because we have this promise of his presence. And we have this promise that we can grow in grace and that we have the strength of God with us. But we are conditionally to do so. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Keep in step with the Spirit. Throw off the sin which so easily hinders. Run the race with patience. Be consistent. Be faithful. And no blessing and no witness. Uh, consistent, with, you know, in our lives. That's what we're craving, isn't it? That sense of consistency that failure isn't inevitable. So we don't say, wow, just that it was bound to happen because of what I'm like. But he says, but you're, you're not like that now. You're a child of God. And the boom and bust of the Old Testament needn't be what we experience. Now, there'll be many times when we don't feel close to God. I know that. But that doesn't mean that we need to be far from God. We don't rely on our feelings, but on the promises and on the person of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament as a roller coaster needn't be our experience. And the last thing, very last thing I want to say, uh, maybe not the best thing to finish with, but death <laughs> remains inevitable, doesn't it? That's the end of the story of Elisha. He isn't resurrected, he dies. He has an illness and he dies, even though he's a prophet. And um, it's the universal story, isn't it? Story of the kings. It's the story of Elisha, it's the prophets, the story of every single human being that one day it will be uh, our epitaph that we'll have died. And, you know, Job recognizes that in that wonderful struggle uh, of Job with God through that book. He says, my life is passing swif swifter than a weaver's shuttle. 
It's the one certainty in this uncertain world, isn't it? And I think the end of the story of Elisha is significant at that level uh, because it's something that mocks. It mocks our invincibility. We're really invincible. We're independent. We're young. We're brave. We're in control. But death is the one thing that mocks that. And, you know, everyone here, we can associate and we know of someone who died at your age. So it's not just something for old people to consider. And uh, it's a very great reality in the world in which we live. And that death is always for us needs to be seen, I think, as Christians, as part of God's judgment over sin and over rebellion. Because, you know, right from the very beginning again, Jesus says, you shall surely die. That's, that's the judgment. Uh, if people, if they rejected God's lordship at that early stage, you shall surely die. It's not just natural, therefore. It is also spiritual judgment. The, this, that comes from the mouth of the author of life. So we're image bearers of God, created to worship him, and in rebelling, in the mystery of rebellion, in the mystery of evil coming into our lives, uh, and a rebellion of his lordship, then death entered into the world, into our experience. And it was a rejection of the voluntary, coming under the voluntary lordship of God. Now, I wonder if that, this may be a very untheological thing to say, but, and, and a lot of people ask, you know, where did evil come from? Why did God create evil? We know God didn't create evil. But we know evil came into the world. I wonder, and maybe people will, will, will uh, shoot me down for it. I wonder, was it always a risk of creation? Was it always a risk of creating men and women in his image to love him voluntarily and freely that there would always be... Part of the cost of that was the risk that they would reject him. And... Uh, with the solemnity of that, we recognize that death is part, that we are part of that judgment and that Christ's death on our behalf is so significant. Death is that great megaphone which changes our perspective because it's the judgment of God. But I don't finish there. I finish there with the truth that it's also the experience of God. And that's the remarkable and amazing thing. That's why we never move from the cross. Because the cross reminds us that not only is death the judgment of God, but it's also the experience of God on our behalf. That all death, your death and mine, can only be defeated in one place. So we never, be, we never trivialize the cross, and we never, boring the cross, move on to deeper and more significant. Never! Because that's the place where it all happened. And that's the place where God becomes the curse, the judgment on our behalf. Remarkable, brilliant, glorious place that everything points forward to. And where we can find our safety and our hope. It's the, it's the simplicity of substitution, but it's the mystery of the death of God, the Son of God, for us. But out of that great darkness of death comes a great life and a great light. And his resurrection is our guarantee of resurrection and a future beyond our wildest dreams. So we don't lose sight of that. And we don't just live therefore for today. 
And we don't just think that our life is about living till we're old and then that's it finished. Uh, and it's, it's once you're past 30, then there's nothing worth living for. But it's, it's much more than that. It's much more than that. It's this great hope of a, a new creation, of a new future in Christ. And it's based on these promises that are integral and uh, uh, interwoven through the whole of Scripture, sealed in the blood of Jesus and in his resurrection. So I hope that in the, the kind of strangeness of this chapter and this, the, the stories, that we can find significance and importance and relevance for our own lives. Amen. Let's pray briefly together. Father God, help us to hear and understand and know your word and your will. Um, we're amazed at scripture and uh, we're amazed at your consistency and uh, your faithfulness and your covenant. We're amazed at your promises. We're amazed that our lives are being transformed. We're amazed at how little we accept often wholeheartedly your promises forgive us when we drag our feet when we don't really believe them when we say well these promises aren't really for me and when we lose sight of the greatness of our God and the wonder of his salvation forgive us for that Lord when we live just for today and when uh, we choose so much to dethrone you and shove you off the throne of our lives and we demand that dark place of, of lordship in our own lives which is uh, a dangerous and a powerless place to be so fill us with your grace and keep us close to your truth and your word and its application in our lives and bless us we pray as we sing together uh, as we worship you together uh, at the end of this day for jesus sake amen